0: Chapter Twenty, Vietnam: The Advisory Years to 1965 by Robert Futrell and Martin Blumenson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Hampton. Chapter Twenty: Diffusion of Air Assets. General Moore, the 2nd Air Division commander, counted General Westmoreland as the biggest booster of tactical air support in Vietnam. But Westmoreland's requests for more air resources in mid-1964 hewed to Army aviation doctrine. He asked for a 4th C-123 Squadron, 16 planes, to take care of wholesale delivery supply under the Southeast Asia military airlift system a second Army CV-2 Caribou company to handle retail deliveries within the core areas, two new Army helicopter companies numbering 70 UH UH-1Bs, some for command use, others for gunships, and two additional air mobile platoons with 20 UH UH-1Bs. Among the 4,800 personnel in the package were 40 air liaison officer and forward air controller teams. PACAF understood and agreed to the need for the C-123 squadron in light of Viet Cong's success in attacking surface transportation. But an extra caribou company seemed unnecessary if the CV-2s already in Vietnam were put under central control of the airlift system for common use. General LeMay disliked the more Odin position of complementary needs for armed helicopters and tactical air. He objected strongly to helicopter gunships. Despite the Air Force chief's contention that strike aircraft gave more firepower, Secretary of Defense McNamara, on August 7, 1964, approved Westmoreland's list of requirements. Three days later, a Royal Australian Air Force detachment of six caribous arrived at Tan Son and went under control of the airlift system. But the new Army Caribou Company reaching Vietnam in September remained outside systematic control. The Air Force Reserve furnished the fresh squadron of C-123s, the planes flown to tanzan in mid-September by rotating replacement crews. In early October, the 19th Air Commando Squadron, Troop Carrier, was formed and assigned to the 315th Troop Carrier Group. In August, the Joint Chiefs of Staff had forwarded General LeMay's question on the comparative merits of tactical air and armed helicopters. General Westmoreland, MACV Commander, responded and asserted that the latter had numerous advantages over strike aircraft support. General Moore took exception and argued that many of the alleged benefits were invalid. Continuing discussions consumed a lot of staff energy that might better have gone to the combat situation. Westmoreland did not neglect tactical aviation, even though he heartily endorsed armed helicopters. For the first time, MACV critiques of Vietnamese ground operations pointed out missed opportunities for tactical air support. For example, in Phu Yen Province on August 19, three battalions attacked about 500 Viet Cong without once calling for strike aircraft. This, MACV commented, was the major fault of the operation. Past counterinsurgency experts had viewed airstrikes as impeding pacification. Then, Leon Gower, an analyst with the RAND Corporation, interviewed Viet Cong prisoners and concluded that the adverse effects were far less than assumed. He further found that since the Viet Cong were on the lookout for strike aircraft, they feared even liaison planes. Yet MACV desired more helicopters because strike aircraft and liaison planes were too few, a shortage seen by General Moore as the most important limiting factor in the USAF effort. Due to training demands, only 8 of the 29 A-1Es of the 1st Air Commando Squadron were on hand for 12 combat sorties a day. An average of just 30 Vietnamese A-1Hs were available for 35 to 45 combat sorties. Eight aircraft of the 1st Air Commando Squadron crashed, at least two due to enemy ground fire. These A-1Es were shot down on the night of September 23 when silhouetted by flares while making a low-level napalm pass. General Moore had proposed in August that the Vietnamese be given a 5th and a 6th A-18 squadron, and he asked that the B-57 and F-100 jets at Binh Ha and Da Nang be used within the country. MACV and the JCS concurred. When the Joint Chiefs took up in September the matter of lagging tactical air support, they suggested using jets, but President Johnson was unwilling to do so. To up USAF sorties, Ambassador Taylor advocated deleting the need for a bona fide Vietnamese trainee pilot aboard an A-1E during a combat mission. Perhaps, the Joint Chiefs said, USAF A-1Es could fly combat while carrying a Vietnamese observer if a pilot was not on hand. Although at first entirely negative, Secretary McNamara on September 25 agreed to permit A-1E combat operations with a Vietnamese observer or student pilot aboard. The JCS tried again to allow USAF crews to respond to immediate and emergency air requests. But Ambassador Taylor still resisted opening the door to wider use of American crews, and McNamara agreed. In October, the Joint Chiefs authorized A-1Es to engage in combat with a Vietnamese pilot or observer aboard. For the Vietnamese Air Force, they recommended a 5th A-1H squadron in May 1965 and a 6th in October 1965. Until then, two USAF A1E units were required in the country. During October-December 1964, the 34th Tactical Group and the Vietnamese Air Force slightly expanded their strike aircraft. Organized under the 34th Group on October 12, the USAF 602nd Fighter Commando Squadron began to build in both personnel and planes. The 520th, or 4th Vietnamese Fighter Squadron, formed at Bien Hà in October... Prepare to move to the new Tho airfield. In December, the 34th Group flew about 50 A-1 sorties a day, 17 of them available for combat. The planes performed admirably on strike missions, but proved hard to maintain, chiefly due to in-flight engine failures. The Americans nevertheless kept 80% of the aircraft operational. In contrast, the Vietnamese could muster only 58%. For example, the 516th Fighter Squadron at Da Nang had fifteen aircraft, but its sortie rate was about six per day. The five twentieth Fighter Squadron flew a few missions in December, but construction lagged at Kantho, later called Bin Tui, and the field was insecure at night. Beginning december twentieth, the squadron daily deployed a detachment of five A one Hs to Bin Tui. The pilots were on call for missions until they returned to Bin Ha just before nightfall. The expansion of the Vietnamese Air Force was supported by adequate aircraft delivery and aircrew training. It suffered from troubles in training maintenance men, owing in part to shortages of ground support and handling equipment. The Vietnamese borrowed a few dollies, loading hoists, and other equipment from the 34th Tactical Group. Only main bases like Bien Hà owned these items, which hardly helped the situation at forward bases. On October 8th, at the height of the Tonkin Gulf crisis, PACAF issued orders inactivating the 19th Tactical Air Support Squadron, as had earlier been planned. General Westmoreland expressed surprise to Admiral Sharp and asked to retain the unit. In lieu of giving the O-1 liaison planes to the Vietnamese 116th Liaison Squadron as contemplated, Westmoreland proposed the purchase of U-17A aircraft to equip that unit. On September 25, Defense Secretary McNamara approved. The 19th Tactical Air Support Squadron was reactivated at Bien Ha on October 31. MACV recommended 30 more planes for it and each of the four Vietnamese liaison units as well. The reversal of the earlier phase-out decision left the squadron in limbo. Until pipeline support could be restored, the 34th Tactical Group possessed 24 O-1s and 12 liaison pilots, three of whom were about to complete their tours. A detachment of O-1Fs stayed at Bien Ha to train newly graduated Vietnamese pilots arriving from Nha Trang. Ten O-1Fs with liaison officers and forward air controllers went under the air support operations centers. The USAF controller with the 14th Regiment at Tri Vinh was Captain Lloyd E. Lewis. When he received an O-1 and a Vietnamese observer in September, he began to fly day-long surveillance missions coordinated with the Vinh Binh province commander. The result was an appreciable decline in Viet Cong activity. Friendly ground action became more productive, as did interdiction targeting and airstrikes. In September, William P. Graham and Aaron H. Katz of RAND studied the use of USAF liaison officers and forward air controllers on constant visual reconnaissance and strike control. The two analysts gathered data for a new concept they called the Single Integrated Attack Team. The idea was presented in Saigon, Hawaii, and Washington in October, and next in a RAND report. The theory favored small and closely coordinated air and ground strike forces as the best counterinsurgency weapon. O-1 crews were to carry out continuous and extensive airborne surveillance and strike control. They would work with special forces ground teams of about 80 men, who were to hold the Viet Cong groups long enough for strike aircraft to sweep in. Unfortunately, the concept was better suited to an insurgency in its initial stages than to the field warfare the Viet Cong were starting to wage. Meanwhile, General Kang had embarked on a general shakeup following the abortive coup attempt against him in September. His sweeping personnel changes in the Joint General Staff and among the field commanders produced officers unfamiliar with the air request system. To explain the system's features, a team from the USAF Air Ground Operations School completed a countrywide circuit in October and November. But all attempts to persuade the Vietnamese to assign sufficient workers to the request net to disperse O-1As to forward locations and to let others besides Vietnamese air observers mark targets were fruitless. The field commanders refused to be bypassed in requests for airstrikes, Neither the Vietnamese Air Force nor ground commanders were willing to assume responsibility under civil law for mistakes that the other might make in marking targets. Strike pilots refrained from accepting targets unless a Vietnamese air observer designated them, and deploying O-1As to forward and remote airstrips meant danger from guerrillas, logistics difficulties, and loss of command control. Despite these drawbacks, Secretary McNamara in November approved a 5th and 6th fighter squadron for the Vietnamese Air Force. He authorized building the Vietnamese liaison squadrons to 30 aircraft each by deliveries of 6801 one O-1As and U-17As from March through May 1965. He said he would probably go along with General Westmoreland's request to give the 19th Tactical Air Support Squadron 30 O-1Fs. He wanted to postpone his decision until the political climate in Saigon improved. The continuous surveillance concept could not be properly set in motion during the winter of 1964-65 due to the dearth of USAF and Vietnamese aircraft and forward air controllers. By December, the 19th Tactical Air Support Squadron was down to seven airmen and nine pilots when it received eight single-engine pilots who needed to be checked out in O-1s. The Vietnamese liaison squadrons owned only 60 of 120 authorized O-1As and U-17As. In the two corps, there were just four O-1 controllers on hand. In compensation, USAF Research and Development had turned out some new weapons that TAC's Special Air Warfare Center had tested. A munitions survey team visiting Vietnam thought that these weapons and new techniques ought to replace older munitions and methods. The hazards of Viet Cong ground fire to low-flying aircraft, particularly those on napalm runs, demanded a different approach to Hamlet defense. Fragmentation clusters replaced napalm on night flare-assisted missions. Fighters delivered the clusters from a dive to shave the time they were silhouetted by flare light. The first combat application group at Eglin Air Force Base had devised and tested a three-gun side-firing installation in a C-47. The air staff called for operational testing of these rapid-fire 762 millimeter Gatling guns, miniguns, either affixed to the racks of an A1 or mounted and fired from the side cargo doors of an orbiting C-47. In September, Mark 44 Lazy Dog free-falling finned bullets were approved for use in Vietnam. The Lazy Dog worked well at first but not in terrain covered with heavy growth. The fins of the small projectiles easily bent out of shape when loaded into the dispensers from which they were dropped. This caused the missiles to tumble and lose their impact. Moreover, the size and shape of the pattern of the falling projectiles were erratic. Clearly, Lazy Dog was no substitute for napalm when enemy and friendly troops were fairly close to each other. Other new weapons also proved not entirely reliable. Tests by the First Combat Application Group verified that it was desirable to modify the C-47 with lateral-firing miniguns. Still, PACAF and TAC were reluctant to employ the minigun-equipped plane in combat. They deemed it obsolete, vulnerable to ground fire, and unable to perform as well as strike aircraft. To General John P. McConnell, Air Force Vice Chief of Staff, who would succeed General LeMay as chief on February 1, 1965, An armed C-47 was a highly specialized weapon for use solely in areas of light ground fire. The aircraft could fly long night alert missions and react swiftly to surprise attacks. Circling above small arms range, it could pin down the enemy until fighters got there. The armed C-47 would help offset the shortage of strike aircraft and the inefficiency of night fighter airborne alerts. Following a November 2 briefing on the armed C-47, General LeMay ordered a combat evaluation that got underway in early December. A test team led by Major Ronald W. Terry fitted two C-47s of the 34th Tactical Group with miniguns. These aircraft were an instant success against enemy troops in the open. Using an improvised gun sight and putting the plane's wing down in a Pylon 8 turn, the pilot could direct fire from the three miniguns mounted in the left-hand cargo door. When fired together, They spewed 18,000 rounds per minute into a space about the size of a football field. An aerial gunner cleared jams and reloaded the weapons in flight. While the small caliber bullets were easily deflected in wooded stretches, the AC-47 gunships were outstanding for night Fort and Hamlet defense. Awed by the stream of tracers, the Viet Cong spoke of the new ray gun turned upon them. Integrated air reconnaissance fully responsive to users' need did not develop in 1964, and the absence of a coordinated reconnaissance intelligence target system was a serious defect. The main stumbling block was a splintering of air reconnaissance in and out of the country. Many elements were involved, but the stateside USAF Tactical Air Reconnaissance Center placed most of the blame on the shortage of keen and influential senior Air Force officers in Vietnam. By early 1964, the reconnaissance assets of 2nd Air Division had consisted of six Able Mabel RF 101s, two experimental infrared RB 57s, two experimental infrared FB 26s, and two night photo RB 26Cs, plus the 13th Reconnaissance Technical Squadron, formerly a photo processing cell. All operated under Detachment 1, 33rd Tactical Group but supported the 2nd Air Division's Director of Intelligence. Time and again, Colonel Harvey E. Henderson, 2nd Air Division's Deputy Commander, had suggested that all these resources be brought into a tactical reconnaissance squadron. To do so, however, would have exceeded the Air Force's authorized unit force levels. Mirroring the talk of phasing out the American forces from Vietnam, planners programmed a decline in U.S. reconnaissance, Furthermore, the Vietnamese 716th Composite Reconnaissance Squadron, with three RC-47s and 18 RT-28s, together with photo-processing cells in the core tactical zones, was becoming operational. Except for problems in camera installation, this squadron was making solid progress. As the 716th reached its projected goal in early 1964 of 374 sorties a month, the Able mabel RF-101s were to depart along with six Army Mohawk armed photo reconnaissance planes. Unforeseen events buffeted the projections. The U-2 aircraft from Bien flew very high-altitude photo missions over Southeast Asia. Film from these flights swamped the 13th Reconnaissance Technical Squadron, which had to call upon other PACAF, SAC, and Navy facilities in the Philippines and Japan. Unfortunately, the U-2 photography needed for national strategic planning had slight value for tactical users. Moreover, the wing stress weakness of the B-26 led to the removal of the RB-26s from Vietnam at the close of March 1964, diminishing night photo coverage. At the same time, the Vietnamese reconnaissance program ran into technical snags. The improved RC-47 infrared photo systems were operational in April and could locate the enemy by heat source imagery but MACV intelligence could not use this information because procedures had not been worked out to exploit the infrared photography. Two things were to alter sharply the whole reconnaissance program, the U.S. decision in May to begin air reconnaissance over Laos, and Secretary McNamara's orders to retrain Vietnamese RT-28 pilots for a 4th A-1H squadron. Six more USAF RF-101s arrived to augment the 6 Able Abel-Mabel aircraft. All RT-28s were removed from the Vietnamese 716th Squadron, and three RC-47s were assigned to the Vietnamese 43rd Transport Group. After a few transport missions, the RC-47s were restored to photo duty in the 3 and 4 Corps. In mid-year, the RF-101s commenced flying out of Tansan over Laos. Yet authorized occasional night photography and infrared reconnaissance were out of the question. The two RC-47s for this work had no self-contained navigation systems, chiefly terrain clearance radar, and mountains and uncertain weather made the flights too hazardous. The Air Force set up delivery of two more RC-47s with Doppler navigation and in-flight readout infrared sensors. These planes could not be modified and in place until December 1964. General Harris, PACAF commander, pressed for low-level reconnaissance to secure more detailed coverage for tactical air operations. Admiral Sharp had no hope of obtaining blanket approval for these flights due to their danger to low-flying planes. SingPAC needed to justify each mission to officials in Washington on a case-by-case basis. As the photo reconnaissance workload grew in South Vietnam, PACAF sent 6 more RF-101s to Tan Son Yu- Another six RF-101s that had been dispatched to Kadena in the wake of the Tonkin Gulf crisis also assisted. The Vietnamese RC-47s continued their coverage in the III and IV Corps, two Vietnamese air crews being permanently assigned to reconnaissance. Requests for photography forwarded straight to air support operation centers markedly increased. Since photo reconnaissance could not capture rapidly shifting guerrilla operations, interest in other air reconnaissance techniques quickened. Airborne radio direction finding held promise, and the Army's 3rd Radio Research Unit operated three assorted aircraft. These planes furnished important intelligence of the Viet Cong order of battle, but they could not make precise enough fixes of enemy transmitters to permit air targeting. In the United States, the Air Force tested a C-47, later an EC-47, that could plot the location of a 10-watt radio transmitter within one degree at a range of 25 nautical miles. In January 1964, PACAF requested seven C-47s fitted with more sensitive and accurate radio direction finders. However, the Air Force delayed approval until the experimental plane could be tested in Vietnam. Conducted during February-June 1964, the tests showed the tactical advantage of equipment that gave lines of position to an enemy transmitter regardless of the aircraft's heading. The plane could fly past a transmitter without revealing interest in it, whereas Army gear required a series of head bearings on the transmitter. Yet, as the testing bore out, the C-47 direction finder was not sufficiently sensitive to plot the very low-power, short-range radios used by the insurgents. A better way to pinpoint enemy actions seemed to be infrared reconnaissance sensors. In mid-1964, while two USAF RB-57s waited for tactical work, MACV requested two Army infrared-equipped OV-1Cs to help carry out visual and photographic night surveillance. General Moore asked why the Mohawks were needed when the RB-57s were there. MACV was surprised that an infrared capability was already on hand, but proceeded to justify a requirement for four OV-1Cs, These were to feature side-looking airborne radar in infrared sensors that could be read out in flight. The two RB-57s had older infrared sets, requiring film to be developed and interpreted on the ground after the mission. In December, the Air Force provided two extra RB-57s with in-flight infrared readout. The older RB-57s were retrofitted with newer equipment and returned to service. Word of the Mohawks authorized to MACV reached General LeMay. He wanted them put under the operational control of the 2nd Air Division as part of a joint counterinsurgency reconnaissance task force. General Moore hoped to get authority to coordinate all infrared reconnaissance for MACV, but General Westmoreland favored a quite different control arrangement. In mid-1964, USAF Air Liaison Officers and Forward Air Controllers easily observed Viet Cong activity. Their liaison planes flew over enemy-held areas during the day, and even more at night when the guerrillas kindled fires to cook their food. The infrared sensor aircraft had the mission of collecting heat-radiating intelligence. Experimental night flights of the RB-57s produced infrared photos with hotspots. These, when correlated with ground intelligence, confirmed the positions of Viet Cong camps in Zones C and D. The infrared section of the 13th Reconnaissance Technical Squadron processed the results of each night's infrared mission. From October 1964 on, enemy locations, usually the coordinates of the cooking fire sites, were phoned at once to the Corps Tactical Operations Center. After collation with other intelligence, infrared material was useful for artillery and airstrikes. While the RB-57s were in test during July, 29 infrared targets were requested and 21 were completed. With one more RB-57 in use in December, there were 261 requests for infrared and 228 executed. Most infrared coverage was in the three Corps. To exploit both visual and infrared sightings, the 2nd Air Division proposed target centers for the other Corps. These centers were to funnel information and needs to the Air Operations Center, which would coordinate strike aircraft. On December 20, 1964, however, MACV formed the Central Target Analysis and Research Center at Tansun Nhut as a unit of MACV-J2 intelligence. Its main mission was to coordinate Army and Air Force infrared reconnaissance. The center set up units at the Corps headquarters, and they were responsive to MACV-J2. Flights by RB-57s and OV-1Cs proved invaluable. By January 1965, the new setup was absorbing the entire infrared capability in Vietnam. In February, there were so many requests for RF-101 coverage that the 13th Reconnaissance Technical Squadron was again unable to handle the processing load. Chiefly through correlation of infrared sensor indications with other intelligence, the center identified 250 possible enemy targets in two months. Included were Viet Cong battalion camps in Phu Thai Province that would eventually be struck by B-57 jet bombers. Although the Air Force supported the MACV program to improve intelligence, the system removed control of infrared sorties and much of the RF-101 effort from the Air Operations Center. MACV enjoyed several intelligence sources that by law could not be disclosed to Vietnamese agencies. Consequently, the Vietnamese delayed and in some cases refused to allow strikes against targets so generated. The Central Target Analysis and Research Center worked at cross-purposes with the 2nd Air Division's desire to develop close relations with province chiefs for intelligence and quick air targeting. Had the MACV system been staffed with more USAF targeting, interpretation, and reconnaissance officers, they might have produced more airstrikes. But General Westmoreland regarded all air operations as support for ground troops and of necessity responsive to ground commanders. He even included interdiction, a normal USAF responsibility. Hence, the MACV J-2 had the principal say on how air reconnaissance and surveillance resources were to be used. This left the 2nd Air Division's commander working through the Air Operations Center with only nominal operational control over reconnaissance forces. These, like the aircraft flying close support and interdiction in South Vietnam, became chiefly geared to ground needs. So too the airlift. Although General LeMay preferred to have C-123 assault transports used in tactical operations rather than as logistics carriers, the insecure rail and road net imposed great stress on air. At times, U.S. commanders joked that the Vietnamese army refused to travel on the ground and to keep roads and rails open because the Air Force moved everything for them. The adding of air escort for trains and convoys did little to restrain requests for air movements. The 315th Troop Carrier Group at Townsend San operated the Southeast Asia airlift system. Its transport control office in the Air Operations Center managed common-use airlift in South Vietnam and Thailand. Assigned to the 315th Air Division at Tachikawa Air Base, Japan, the group came under MACV operational control, exercised by the 2nd Air Division. American and Vietnamese forces projected monthly airlift requirements and sent them to the Joint Airlift Allocation Board in MACV J4 Logistics. The board, in fact, consisted of one officer in the J4 Movement's branch. He screened and processed the requests set priorities, and with the Joint General Staff levied the requirements on the airlift units by monthly increments. The 315th Group Commander also served as Director of Air Transportation for the Southeast Asia Airlift System. In theory, he could call upon the 48 USAF C-123s of his three squadrons, three C-47s of the 1st Air Commando Squadron, two of 16 U.S. Army CV-2B Caribou transports, several Vietnamese C-47s, and two Bristol Type-170 transports of the Royal New Zealand Air Force operating in Thailand. Actually, three C-123s and three Air Commando C-47s were kept on station at Nha to support U.S. Army Special Forces at remote spots. A fire brigade of three C-123s at Tan Nuit and one at Da Nang stood alert, ready to respond on 15-minute notice to the need for a paratroop drop or equivalent emergency. Besides, two C-123s were regularly allocated for service in Thailand, and the Vietnamese C-47s were usually flying other missions. Colonel David T. Fleming, commander of the 315th Troop Carrier Group, depicted the airlift system as a hodgepodge of badly tacked together elements saturated with requirements. The sole officer on the Joint Airlift Allocation Board could not possibly screen requests for validity. Cargo that should have gone by surface transportation was airlifted, and cargo for airlift was often late or absent at air terminals. Communications for keeping track of transport flights were unreliable. Aircraft frequently left bases empty or partially loaded. The great demands constantly pushed the C-123s above their programmed 60 hours of flying time a month per aircraft. They were wearing out, stressed by landings and takeoffs on rough fields. By May 1964, skin wrinkles appeared on the top sides of two planes. Further inspection at Tan Son disclosed visible damage on all 37 C-123s that had been in Vietnam for nearly three years. 11 required extensive repairs, those at Da Nang in the theater for a year had minor damage. Airlift further declined when C-123s went to Thailand in July to join the two on station there. That same month, two U.S. Army Caribous were lost in crashes. The debut in August of six CV-2B Caribous of the Royal Australian Air Force helped redress the balance. They contributed 600 tons of short-range airlift a month, proving that all the caribou's could be scheduled and used within a centralized system. The system did well despite its shortcomings. Over the first half of 1964, the C-123s bore the bulk of the airlift load. They airdropped 1,270 tons of supplies, moved 1,252 paratroopers and 115 tons of material in assault missions and flew 239 night flare sorties, dispensing flares 119 times. The Air Commando C-47s airdropped 405 tons of cargo and flew 1,338 air-landed resupply missions, 2,010 passengers, and 1,246 tons of supplies. As a rule, the two U.S. Army Caribous made short hauls, They flew 7,939 air-landed sorties, 4,731 passengers, and 3,322 tons of cargo. The three USAF C-123s and the three Air Commando C-47s at Natrang delivered about 1,500 tons a month throughout 1964 to the scattered, fortified outposts at remote sites held by Army Special Forces. Cargo loads varied from neatly packed bundles to bulky and unwieldy rolls of concertina wire, sandbags, and steel stakes, frequently a mixture of all. Landing strips at the forward locations were rough, and drop zones hard to find, especially in marginal weather. Enemy ground fire made low-altitude approaches dangerous. During 1964, more C-123s were hit by ground fire than any other type of fixed-wing aircraft. Lieutenant Colonel Victor N. Curtis, USAF Air Liaison Officer at Natrang, spoke of the C-47 and C-123 crews as some of the most professional and dedicated people he had ever known. The Special Forces likewise appreciated the air supply. They lent a hand in rigging AN-PRC-10 radios aboard the transports for communications with the camps, but the aircraft commanders commonly relied on smoke signals to direct landing and drops. The crews manhandled their airdrop cargo in a manner reminiscent of World War II. Through the autumn of 1964, the C-123s and C-47s supporting the special forces ran serious risks. A C-123 on October 24 tried to resupply an outpost in western Duc province but could not make radio contact. The plane wandered over the Cambodian border and was shot down with the loss of all eight crewmen. In December, half of the 310th Troop Carrier Squadron and seven of its C-123s went to Nha to replace the C-47s, which were withdrawn. The seven C-123s, an Australian CV-2, and three Army CV-2s supported the special forces. The 4,200 new U.S. field advisors that General Westmoreland had asked for in June and July would need an average of 1,200 tons of airlift each month. Colonel Fleming therefore requested a C-123 squadron to bring his total to four. Until that unit arrived, PACAF committed 11 C-130s from the 315th Air Division to the airlift in South Vietnam. These planes worked off the backlog of air cargo at the major terminals. The Gulf of Tonkin crisis in August had triggered a hurried deployment of USAF units into South Vietnam and Thailand. The 315th Division, aided by three TAC C-130 squadrons of the Composite Air Strike Force, handled these movements. The Division's Detachment 3 at Clark Air Base functioned as the movement control center. In 1962, Ranch Hand C-123s had flown a series of defoliation missions in South Vietnam. C Chapter 10. The results led the Joint Chiefs to conclude in April 1963 that aerial spraying of herbicides had military value to kill the foliage concealing the enemy and to destroy his crops. The Kennedy administration granted joint authority to the U.S. Ambassador and McPhee to order defoliation spraying, but it cleared no U.S. crews and aircraft for spray missions against Viet Cong crops. Specific approval for each crop destruction target had to come from Washington. The chemicals worked best in the wet season when the vegetation was actively growing. Ranch Hand therefore waited until June and July 1963 before clearing growth from the Saigon to Dai Lat power line and canals in the Kaumau Peninsula. This and other spraying over the year improved the view and reduced cover for hostile ambush operations. There were 87 square kilometers defoliated through 1963, compared to 20 in 1962. In January 1964, the U.S. Army Division Advisors were allowed to make wider use of aerial spray around depots, airfields, and outposts. They could also approve hand spray operations against enemy crops. Warnings had to go out to the civilian population before spraying. In consequence, the ranch hand C-123s, flying at 150 feet, were exposed to enemy ground fire. In 1962 and 1963, the average number of hits on each spray plane per mission was four small arms bullets. The risk rose in 1964 as spray flights treated areas totally dominated by the Viet Cong. On April 30, a ranch hand aircraft ran into 50 caliber fire that wounded the co-pilot and tore 40 holes in the plane. Fighters regularly escorted spray missions and struck the areas from which the C-123s took ground fire. The Ranch Hand C-123s staged to Da Nang in May and June 1964. They set about spraying the elephant grass and other vegetation that sheltered the enemy along the roads in the A Xau A Lui Valley and other areas near the Laotian border. Completed quickly before the Viet Cong could fully react, these flights sustained just four hits in the course of 26 sorties. On five spray missions in three Corps during May, C-123s were struck 15 times by ground fire. On two occasions, MACV suspended operations where heavy firing persisted. Ranch Hand functioned on temporary duty until July 1964, supported by the Tactical Air Command. Then, the three spray C-123s and their specialized crews became Detachment 1 of the 315th Troop Carrier Group, permanently assigned to PACA. Though Vietnamese helicopters and ground troops had sprayed crops in 1962 and 1963, no American aircraft or personnel had been permitted to take part in crop destruction prior to 1964. On July 29, 1964, Ambassador Taylor received the authority to approve crop destruction operations without first referring them to Washington. In May, VNAF helicopters had resumed crop destruction but were unable to spray crops in certain areas. Taylor therefore directed Ranch Hand to spray some crop targets beginning on October 30. The Ranch Hand planes had to operate under the farm gate concept when spraying crops. That is, they carried temporary South Vietnamese markings and were under the ostensible control of a South Vietnamese aircraft commander who was also on board. To cut exposure to ground fire, the three Ranch Hand aircraft in August were given modified spray systems. Now they could dispense herbicides at the rate of three gallons per acre doubled the old rate and finished a mission in a single pass. Their first 19 crop spraying sorties lasted 10 days in October, directed against rice, corn, manioc, bananas, and pineapples near War Zone D. While fighters escorted all flights, enemy ground fire scored 40 hits on the C-123s. In November and December, ranch hands sprayed enemy rice near War Zone D. An intelligence source quoted the Viet Cong Phuoc Tang. Provincial Committee as reporting that the destroyed rice would have fed their troops in the area for two years. During these flights, ground fire shot out an engine on a C 123, and the plane barely made it back to Bien Ha. A fourth C 123 was added in December. By the end of the year, the detachment had flown 72 survey flights and 363 spray sorties, defoliated 353 square kilometers of vegetation and destroyed 7,620 acres of Viet Cong crops. This contrasted with the 750 acres of crops sprayed by the Vietnamese in 1962 and the 197 acres in 1963. Concern of Washington officials over strengthening the Kang government focused fresh attention on psychological operations during the spring of 1964. Psychological warfare had been conducted since 1961, but with uneven results. In November 1961, Farmgate had first used four SC-47s for leaflet drops and loudspeaker broadcasts. The SC-47, however, was not well-suited to remote area work. Farmgate wanted a plane that could land at a forward site, pick up local officials or Viet Cong defectors, and let them speak from the air to people who would recognize their voices. To do this, the L-28 Helio Super Courier later designated U-10, seemed ideal. The aircraft, specially configured for the CIA, featured short takeoff and landing and other admirable characteristics. Farmgate requested eight L-28s, and authority to create a psychological warfare branch of three qualified officers and two technicians to forge a sophisticated psychological warfare effort. These efforts were abruptly dampened On February 11, 1962, a low-flying SC-47 dropping leaflets near Da Lat crashed and killed eight Americans and one Vietnamese. Embarrassed by the loss of so many Americans on a flight that was supposed to train Vietnamese, Secretary McNamara ordered leaflet and speaker missions turned over to the Vietnamese. The Joint Chiefs directed that U.S. aircraft refrain from such operations, except in unusual circumstances. In June 1962, the Vietnamese equipped a C-47 with speakers for airborne broadcasts. The air staff and PACAF wanted Farmgate to train Vietnamese Air Force personnel for psychological warfare. But by April 1963, the 2nd Air Division Director of Operations, Colonel Winston P. Anderson, judged the Vietnamese to have little recognition of its importance. From June 1962 through January 1963, the Vietnamese speaker-equipped C-47 had made a total of 22 flights, 14 loudspeaker, and 8 psychological warfare. Now and then, the standard C-47s dispensed leaflets and the L-19s of the liaison squadrons participated in a small program of civic action, troop information, and enemy leaflet dissemination. In September 1962, Farmgate received two of four authorized U-10 Helio Super Couriers, one being rigged with speakers. Between December 14, 1962 and May 13, 1963, Farmgate made a number of flights in the U-10 to evaluate as a psychological warfare aircraft. And in May, Mr. McNamara approved the use of American planes to supplement Vietnamese psychological operations, provided minimum U.S. personnel were aboard. The mission was then divided between the Vietnamese Air Force and the 2nd Air Division, with neither of them given authority to coordinate the overall psychological warfare program. The 2nd Air Division favored the Helio Super Courier. While the C-47 carried a navigator and was better for night flights, the U-10 was more maneuverable, not as noisy, and less susceptible to ground fire since it was smaller. The weight of the U-10's laminated fiberglass armor diminished aircraft performance, but protected the crew against light-caliber fire. After speakers and other equipment were installed in two more U-10s, the 2nd Air Division had three planes for speaker and leaflet missions. Their flight stepped up after May 1963. By October 22, 2nd Air Division aircraft had flown 386 psychological warfare sorties. In the spring of 1964, aerial psychological operations were often the sole swift means of communication between the government and remote rural peoples. Since part of President Kang's weakness stemmed from loss of contact with the hinterland, it was proposed to expand the training of Vietnamese in psychological operations. While visiting Saigon, Carl T. Rowan, director of the U.S. Information Agency, was impressed with the potential of these activities. He supported the proposal to enlarge them, which President Johnson approved on April 28. To support the Vietnamese Armed Forces in Political Warfare, the Vietnamese Air Force set up a General Political Warfare Directorate with headquarters at Tan Son and officers at each wing. Ten single-engine utility aircraft, six U-6As and four U-17As were delivered to the Vietnamese Air Force for modification to psychological warfare duty. Also over the summer of 1964, the 2nd Air Division worked with the United States Army Support Command, Saigon, to test a public address system. It consisted of eight 125-watt speakers installed in the Vietnamese H-34 helicopter. Messages could be heard on the ground as the chopper flew at a fairly safe altitude of 3,000 feet, but the rotor blades distorted the sound. The 2nd Air Division abandoned the project while the Army continued to maintain seven UH-1B copters fitted with the public address system. American and Vietnamese aircraft in August 1964 reached a new high of 132 psychological warfare sorties. The Vietnamese were nevertheless more concerned with internal personnel services to the soldiers and airmen. Caught up in the conversion to fighter aircraft, the Vietnamese paid scant attention to psychological warfare. Four U-17s were used in and around Saigon, yet only one U-6 was modified due to the complications in installing speakers. The U-10 section of the 1st Air Commando Squadron was authorized four aircraft and six pilots. An accident claimed one plane in September, and the absence of a planned flow of replacement pilots proved even more serious. In November, the U-10 section was down to two pilots, each averaging more than 100 flying hours during the month. Psychological warfare sorties by USAF and Vietnamese aircraft totaled 106 in September, 109 in October, 69 in November, and 102 in December 1964. Although four USAF replacement pilots finally joined the U-10 section, the impression was current that we are piddling with psychological operations and not getting anywhere. That impression also applied to the broader canvas of events in Vietnam. This is the end of chapter 20. This has been read by Paul Hampton.